Amen. May it be so. Brethren, please open your copy of God's Holy Word to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. This morning I'm just going to be looking briefly at verses 4 through 11, hitting a few key points I want us to see, the Lord would have us to see from this text. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. If you please stand for the hearing, faith, and honor of the Word of God. Romans 2, verses 4 through 11. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no partiality with God. Thus far for the reading of God's word, may he make it effectual to our hearts. Amen. You may be seated, brethren. Well, as we've seen in previous sermons through Romans, Paul has gotten to the end of Romans, of Romans 1, and he has thoroughly indicted, thoroughly exposed the unrighteousness of the Gentile pagans, of the idolatrous uh, 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 polytheists among the pagans and their worship, their creature worship as we saw at the end of Romans 1 and their worship the creature more than the creator suppressing the truth in unrighteousness blatant unrighteousness suppressing the truth about God, his, his Godhead and, and, and his eternal uh, power and, and Paul has laid out his indictment uh, through the end of that and again I would exhort you to go back and read that carefully and ending with them, God having given over, given over. Again, when there's unrepentance and refusal to acknowledge God as God and turn from idolatry as a society to turn back to the Lord, we saw how the Lord, He gives cultures over, He gives peoples over to increasing depravity, to have it their own way, you know, to do that which is not fitting. And they begin, as we saw, to not only not only starting with, you know, are, are there... My, not only do they, are, are their wills corrupt, but then their affections begin to lust after unnatural things, perversions. And when they, if they refuse to repent and turn to the Lord after he has given them that, then he says they literally give them over to a, a, a depraved mind. They can't even think straight. And we saw, is that not where we are as a nation? A nation that has largely lost our mind, can't think straight and rightly about God, but you remember as we turn to chapter 2 that Paul had started here, and you can imagine the, the Jews you know, had just recently come back into the church of Rome, uh, having been allowed in by Claudius, now coming back to the Gentile brethren, and the Jews having heard you know, Paul in chapter 1 thinking, yeah, that's right, you lawless pagans. Well, in chapter 2, Paul turns and says, you, know, you also are an excusable old man, whoever you are, Jew or Gentile, who 
you condemn others. You sat here and just heard what I wrote at the end of Romans chapter 1. And you said, yeah, that's right. They're evil. They're wicked. They're just like that. And yet you who have the law and you who know the law and you know righteousness and you even applaud it and say, that's right. We know that's right. We don't. That's guilty and that's wicked and that's wicked. Yes, that's right. And amen. He says, nevertheless, you who, do this, who say those things, yet you practice the same. Hypocrisy. Maybe not exactly the same form, but of the same kind, we said so often. You know, you may not break, you may not uh, be an idolater the way they are, but you, you're, you're being an idolater the way you are in the sense of setting up yourself on the throne of your heart, setting yourself up as the creature that you worship instead of Jesus Christ as the living God. You, you may not, you know, we may, you may be the one that says, you know, we don't go off and fornicate and adulterize in that way, but while... In Jesus' name, you'd say and condemn those things while at home, you know, the things that are going on on the Internet were breaking the commandment in other ways. And Paul's point is, is you also are inexcusable, you who condemn, and that you practice the same things. And that's where our text picks up today. I just want us to see from this text really two key truths about God that Paul is seeking to press on them and on us. And again, remember, he's talking now to those who are the, as for lack of a better way of saying it, not the unrighteous, but the self-righteous. The church people. <laughs> he's talking to the church people. And he says here in verse 3, here's the first two truths I want you to see about God. Number one, that God is good and he is lavishly kind. Look what he says there in verse 4. Do you, he says, do you despise the riches? That, that word riches uh, has the idea of just the abundance, the overflow in the Greek of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering towards these Gentiles. Towards what we just read, how he is patient and long-suffering. Yes, he gives them over, but he is, he is patient, and he does not just crush them, and he gives them time and time. Remember, even when the Gentiles, when Abraham... It said in Genesis that his descendants would go and would be slaves in a land of 400 and plus years. And remember what the Lord said, though. He says, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet fulfilled. The Lord was going to be patient and long-suffering with these Canaanites and give them opportunity and opportunity to turn and repent of their idolatry. 400 plus years. He was incredibly long-suffering. And, and, and he's telling these people to whom he's speaking, do you despise a God like that? Does it rub you the wrong way that God is so, the word literally that's goodness in our New King James, the word is, has Christos, his kindness, that he is lavish in his kindness. Is, it, is there something in you that says, oh, I love seeing people just get their comeuppance, get, get their due, get their vengeance? Brethren, I submit to you that, as he's saying to them, if, if, if the first thing that goes on is in your heart is when you see that God is extraordinarily, not infinitely, but he is incredibly rich in long-suffering and patience in his forbearance, which just means forbearance. The Greek there is the idea of the good nature, his tolerance, his delay of people's incompetence or even their rebellion, his holding back and delaying the exposing of their sin and the executing of his judgment. He forbears, he delays before bringing the gavel down. He is long-suffering, it says. This word refers to his, his literally his suffering long. 
suffering unjustly at their hands in the indignity that God suffers at people and their indignation against Him and their idolatry and refusal to worship Him as God rightly. The indignity that God suffers, but He is patient. He is slow to avenge. And these to whom He's writing here who are quick to condemn, quick, quick to pronounce, yeah, Paul is saying, do you despise the gospel? Do you despise the God who is? And do you not see how incredibly long-suffering and patient he's been towards your self-righteousness? Maybe you're not blatantly unrighteous the way the pagans are. The pagans, just per, they do unrighteousness without inhibition. They make no pretense of morality, no pretense. It's like, yeah, it's evil and we're going to do it and we're going to not only do the same but approve of others who do it. But you, he says, you, you Jews, you condemn and yet, you, you condemn it outwardly and yet inwardly, you, you're, you're just bent that way. The law has not changed you fundamentally internally. Right? He's going to get to Romans chapter 10 later and he's going to say that the primary diagnosis of these people here is he says this, they though having the form of the law, yet they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God, but seek to establish their own righteousness. So brethren, the first thing to see about God here is this, God is extraordinarily kind and long-suffering. Not infinitely so. Brethren, we read in chapter 1 about the God's wrath heaping up, and we're going to see more about that in a minute. But brethren, do you love the God who is long-suffering, patient, and kind, forbearing towards sin and sinners. Do you love that gospel because you see that that's the way He is and has been and will be towards you? Brethren, I can tell you, people who have known the living God and truth, who have tasted the goodness of the gospel, the first thing, one of the first things it goes after, the Lord does, is He goes after pride, and He goes after that vindictive condemning, critical, judgmental spirit. People who are lean that way, I can assure you, they may know the name of Jesus, but they have not tasted and drank deeply at the wells of the gospel. Because to know the Lord Jesus in truth, to know God is to become more and more like Him. We, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, we beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed from glory to glory. As we look at the Lord, we become like that. Look at yourselves, brethren. Do you want to be godly in that way? Do you have a critical, harsh, quick-to-condemn spirit? Brethren, my, my call to you today is look at the Lord Jesus. <laughs> look at the God who is and say, God, deliver me from that. Vengeance is yours. God, deliver me from a critical, harsh, condemning spirit. Secondly, though, second quality about God, notice here is that He is just. You'll notice it says here, it speaks here of the the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And it says specifically that God will render to each one according to his deeds. And then in verse 11, it says there is no partiality with God. Now, I know, brethren, when we hear these things, we Reformation Christians, praise God, we who love the gospel and rightly of, of of Romans of Salvation by the imputed grace of God, apart from works, by faith alone. We can read passages like this, or like we read earlier in James 2, and we get a little nervous. (laughs) 
You know, Paul, Paul saying God's going to judge according to works. What, what I want is just to simply say this. First of all, brethren, Paul and James are, are James, Romans 2 here is, is kind of Paul's equivalent of James 2. This is the same Paul who in chapter 3, as we're going to see, who's going to come and say that, that none are saved by any good in them, all stand condemned, and that the only righteousness you have now or ever will have, both legally and practically, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, imputed and imparted to you, apart from your works. But nevertheless, brethren, we need to remember that the reality is is that the gospel of free grace, far from being opposed to practical righteousness, brethren, it's the gospel of free grace in Jesus alone, by faith alone, that actually is the only thing that makes real Christ righteousness from the heart possible. When we get to Romans chapter 8, you're going to see Paul say there that what the law could not do, there's no condemnation to you now who are in Christ Jesus. And we say, amen. But then he's going to tell us why. For what the law, the law of Moses, what the righteous, holy, and good command of God, but what it could not do and that it was weak through our flesh. God did by sending his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He pronounced the death sentence. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that the righteousness required by God's law, the heart righteousness, that Sermon on the Mount righteousness, which is not just outward but inward, that righteousness, he says, that that might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Not perfectly. I still sin, brethren, as you do. I had things to repent of this morning and many. But brethren, for you who are in Christ, he has given you a whole new orientation. You want what's right because you love what is right. God will judge according to our works. Justification is by faith alone, but the final judgment will vindicate that faith by the works that have come out of that faith. So let's just look at a couple, a few things. One, He says here, number one, that this judgment of God and his justness is that it is, it is equitable. Twice there, verse 9 and verse 10, he says that God shows no partiality to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you've got the form of the law or whether you've been a pagan lawless. Doesn't matter whether you're black or white, male, female, slave or free. The judgment of God is without partiality. He favors no one. Nobody starts, (laughs) nobody gets a leg up in that. It's equitable. But then he also says three negatives. Number one, there's no excuses you know, they're without excuse. In the court of the living God, no charges just get dropped. All right? There's, nobody gets to sign plea deals. Like people in our government get to do sometimes. Nobody gets to just sign a deal to get off. No charge dropped. Every detail, every word, thought, and deed accounted for. No defendant is just acquitted because, brethren, all stand condemned. There are no good excuses that will justify a single act of sin against the holy God because every act of sin, brethren, fundamentally is an act of sin that is cosmic treason against the King of Kings, the Creator who made you. It is using the gifts He gave you and me to turn and revolt against Him. Brethren, sin is extraordinarily sinful. That's the point. God sees all. There's no, not only are there no excuses, there's no errors. God's judging eye sees and hears every detail, every word, thought, deed. We're told in Matthew 12, 36 that every, even, every idle word that is spoken will be called into account in that day. 
Every thought and intention of the heart, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4, the Word of God is living and active, powerful. It gets down to the depths of the division of bone, joint, and marrow, to the deep things of the heart, and no creature is hidden from His sight. Right? Brethren, that's the judge. That's Jesus Christ to whom all judgment has been committed. His eye, His blazing eye sees all. Nothing is hidden. And there are even degrees of reward in the kingdom, but there's also degrees of ruin. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Last thing he says here is that not only there are no excuses, no errors, and there's consistent equity, but there's no escape. There's no loopholes, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no ways of escape from the just sentence of death on cosmic treason of those that refuse to turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ as their covering. Those who have engaged in and supported the mutiny Idolatry against the Almighty will receive eternal perdition and ruin if they refuse to look and lay hold of Jesus Christ as their righteousness. So brethren, I'm just going to point that. That's hard. But brethren, I just want to apply that. Do you love the grace of God? Do you look to the grace of God and Jesus' righteousness alone is your only standing? That's the only escape, brethren. But Jesus is a sure foundation to all that lay hold of him. And the judge of all the earth, he has become the lamb and he's become the advocate and he's become the high priest of all those that put their faith in him. Aren't you glad? Boy, I'm glad that he who has the reason and the authority to condemn me has called me friend instead. But that also means that since Jesus is a friend of sinners, brethren, we who know Jesus will be friends of sinners as well. Gracious, long-suffering, patient toward them, not quick to condemn. That turns then lastly to two types of people. And we'll just run through this. Really what it comes down to, if we look at this passage, there's two types of people and there's just kind of four, four sets of divergence, four, four, uh, four a contrast he lays out here. Really what it comes down to is the two types of people we see here are those who believe this truth of what he's just said. They believe that God is, the wrath of God has been poured out against all unrighteousness. They believe in that God of wrath and they also have laid hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's those people who believe in the God of wrath. They know the God who is and they have run to Jesus Christ. And then there are those, the others, who overtly or sometimes covertly like these people are fundamentally rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ by establishing their own righteousness instead of looking to Jesus' righteousness for them and in them. And boy, that can be subtle. So let's look at these two types of people. Number one, he describes here two types of hearts. On the one hand, there's the heart. He says here, as he says, in accordance with your hard and impenitent heart. There's the hearts are... You know, they're hard. They're not malleable. They're not tender. When you describe somebody as hard-hearted, you know, we all know what that means, right? You're hard-hearted. You're lacking compassion. You're vindictive. Quick to judge others, but not quick to point yourself. You're quick to bust that speck in your brother's eye, but man, you can't seem to see the log in your own. And because you're impenitent of it, there's those, he says, that they're hard and they're digging their heels in, right? They're digging their heels in and their self-righteousness. 
So there's that, the one person that, he, that there's the shell around their heart. Their conscience is seared and unfeeling. It's uncompassionate. They're quick to anger and wrath, to condemn. They've established their self-righteousness and won't submit to the deep, the real piercing righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. They're content to have the outside of the bowl clean, but they don't deal with the inside, which only Jesus can by the Spirit and the Word. On contrast to that, there's those who, instead of being hard and proud-hearted and unrepentant, they're the humble and poor in spirit who are repentant. It's not explicit here, but the clear contrast here is, you know, there's those who, in their hardness of heart, are impenitent. And Jesus says, they remember in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What kind of righteousness do the scribes and Pharisees have? He tells you in Matthew 23, it was outward. It was all about externals. It was about man-pleasing. What are people going to think about me rather than what God thinks? About purity on the outside rather than purity on the inside. Jesus says... The righteousness of the kingdom goes beyond that and deals with internals. But Jesus tells us the kind of people to whom that speaks. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Translation, blessed are those who know that they have nothing in themselves. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, foul I to the fountain fly, the hymn says. Wash me, Savior, I die. Saints, do you see yourself? I, I, am a, a bear, I, I live day by day in dependence on the ongoing fount of grace of the Lord. And nothing else will do. Nothing else will satisfy. And because of that, they mourn their sin. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin and the sin of others, not in a self-righteous, condemning way, but because they love God and they hate the thing which is opposed to God, which is sinfulness and idolatry. And so they say, Lord, deal with it in me. Deal with it in the world. I don't want sin because I want the righteousness and the glory of God to be that which is paramount and which is seen and lived out. Brethren, that's the kind of thing he's talking about. Is that us? You're looking at Jesus and saying, Lord, make me poor spirit. Make me mourn over my sin first and then the sins of others. Oh God, make me meek of heart. Make me hunger and thirst for the righteousness which Jesus gives not this outward man-pleasing righteousness. Can... That's the first thing. Second thing, there's not only two hearts here, there's two pursuits. Notice what he says here. There's those, on the one hand, he describes here as self-seeking, right? Eternal life. Uh, he, he describes there um, those that, are, uh, that, that seek themselves, right? Um, that's in, that's in uh, verse 8. Those who are self-seeking on the one hand, on the other hand, there are those who in their pursuits are God-seeking, God's glory and honor. They seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So there's your fundamental contrast. Brethren, really the, the, the application is very simple. For those who inherit the kingdom of God, those who, those who are pleasing to the Lord, they have said, the eye must die. Brethren, a Christian is not a person who is working harder and harder and harder to try to make themselves better. A Christian is a person who says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Jesus lives in me. Right? The old eye is dead. And I'm risen with Jesus. And so because of that, the eye died. 
and I has been raised with Jesus into newness of life. So don't worry about self. No more self-seeking. We're in Christ. I don't need to seek myself in any way. Jesus has already taken care of me. Instead, I seek for glory, honor, immortality. Really, all he's saying there is I, I'm seeking for the manifestation of God himself, glory. I'm seeking for the, God's approval, honor. And I'm seeking for the unfading joy of God's presence, immortality. That's what drives him. Brethren, is that what drives us? Has your eye been crucified with Christ, raised to newness of life? Do you count yourself as dead to yourself, dead to the world, and alive to God in Christ? No. Three, practices, very simple. There's those that do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness on the one hand, and then there's those that by patient continuance in doing good show that they're seeking for glory, honor, and immortality. So there it is, brethren. There's the obedience of faith. Unbelief by its very nature okay, does not obey and submit itself to the truth, but it obeys something. You notice what he, he did? Nobody, nobody ultimately doesn't obey something. Everybody serves somebody. You're either going to serve the living and true God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ through the word of God and the spirit, or you're going to obey unrighteousness. Something will be your master. It's not a question of will you have a master. It's a question of whom, right? They obey unrighteousness. On the other hand, the obedience of faith by patient continuance in doing good, running the race set before you over hills, over valleys. Think Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, right? He set off from the celestial. He set off from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And man, you ever read that? All sorts of difficulties along the way. There's hill difficulties. There's Apollyons. There's temptations. There's Demases. All right, there's atheists, there's, you know, all sorts of diversions, attacks. But brethren, he had set himself in faith on the celestial city. He believed and loved the king of the hill. And so though he strayed at times and he tried to go up the hill lawlessness and that, didn't, that hill law and didn't end well and the Lord got him back and pointed him back and he ends up in the castle of despair for a while and eventually finds the key of hope. Brethren, the reason that Christian and hopeful and faithful endured why they crossed the river and received well done, good and faithful servant of their inheritance is because of patient continuance in doing good. And the reason they did that is because they believed. The just is saved past, present, and future by faith, by believing the gospel and laying hold of Jesus Christ. Lastly, two outcomes. This is where it ends. There's those that, there's those that lay hold, as it were, of eternal death and ruin. They treasure up eternal wrath and misery. That's the way it's described here. It says, they, those who do that are treasuring up wrath in the day of wrath. That word wrath, which we've already seen back in chapter 1, is God's anger exhibited in punishment, not correction. This is, this is punitive, brethren. This is God's anger of those who have refused again and again and again and again to repent, who have despised him and his anger. So what happens? God's attitude in his wrath towards those that continually, repeatedly de defy him in his long-suffering and his goodness and his patience in hardness and repentance. It says that his attitude is indignation. 
And his actions are tribulation and anguish in his wrath. Indignation, brethren, that word just simply means his, 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 his stored up heat, literally. His result of enduring, prolonged, repeated indignities. So God stored up, pent up wrath, just poured out in his anger and it's righteous. And his tribulation, his pressing people, literally is what it means, pressing them into miserable places, pressing them, oppressing them, and afflicting them with distress and anguish. When you think of the word anguish, what kind of images does that evoke? Just misery. When God's wrath, like a dam, though pent up, bursts forth on the unrepentant brethren, this is what happens. God is long-suffering, but he is not infinitely so. But consider the opposite, and with that, we're done. To you, who by patient continuance and doing good, because you believe and look to Jesus, because you're walking with Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, he says here that there is glory, honor, and immortality, and peace. Glory, honor, and peace That's what the text says. You will receive, not only will you see the glory of the living God, we will behold him as he is and be like him, 1 John 3 says. But it says that you, as it says, you will behold him and you will be transformed. You will be made glorious. No more sin. No more bent towards sin. No more corruption. Just perfect love of God and, and conformity to his glory. There will be honor. You will hear the Father say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I remind you in Matthew 10, Jesus says that those who are ashamed of him, I will be ashamed on the last day. But then you remember what else what he says there? I think it's Matthew 10, 32 says, But whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father and the angels in heaven. Jesus will confess you. He will confess you, Christian. He will confess you, pilgrim. I'll say Christian and Christiana. <laughs> to use the He will confess you before the Father. Well done, this one loved me, and you will receive peace, joy, eternal shalom, and joy and escape from the presence of God. Brethren, that is the message of this text. So pastorally, I close with this. Brethren, I want to exhort you today just as deeply as I want you to reject unrighteousness of chapter 1. I want you to reject equally the self-righteousness of chapter 2. Brethren, for you who love Jesus, Jesus' blood, his righteousness imputed to you by faith, as you're covering and Jesus' righteousness imparted to you as you are in union with the Spirit. Brethren, that is your only hope, but that is the only hope you, the Christian, need. Walk in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for blessing us with it. Thank you for giving it to us. I pray that you would help us to walk in the obedience of faith. Lord, increase our faith more than anything else. Father, we know that our faith is a result of spending much time with looking at being in the presence of Jesus. Father, I pray for each of us here that as we walk the race, the road set before us, as we run the race, may we be given the grace to set aside the weights that easily ensnare us. Lay aside those weights. Help us to identify them and put them away. But Lord, I pray that you would keep us from the snares of unrighteousness and self-righteousness. May we be able to say with Paul in truth, I count everything as loss. All righteousness, whatever righteousness the law could muster and it's outwardly, I count it all as loss that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own through the law, 
but the righteousness which is of Christ through faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to him. Father, may that be true of each of us today. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brethren, let's respond in faith.